Hello, and welcome to the Mind Syrup Podcast, the show that discusses proven solutions for those with substance use and mental health disorders. Enjoy interviews with some of the top experts in addiction treatment and mental health to help you enjoy living. And now, here's your host from Mind Syrup, Ken Chance. And welcome to the Mind Syrup Podcast. And tonight we're interviewing Dr. Chris Bundy. He's the Executive Medical Director of the Washington Physicians Health Program. Dr. Bundy joined WPHP, that's the abbreviation for it, in 2014. And Dr. Chris has served as the Executive Medical Director since 2016. And he works collaboratively with the executive director in the overall fulfillment of their mission. Dr. Bundy is responsible for the clinical operations. He leads the organization's health and outreach efforts and represents the Washington Physicians Health Program to the healthcare community. And prior to that, Dr. Bundy was serving as the mental health service chief and chief of psychiatry at the VA Puget Sound Healthcare System in Seattle, Washington. Dr. Bundy is currently serving as immediate past president of the Federation of State Physician Health Programs, which is the National Association of Physician Health Programs, where Dr. Bundy is an advocate for initiatives to improve physician health and well being. A native Washingtonian, Dr. Bundy completed medical school, residency, and fellowship at the University of Washington and is clinical associate professor at both the University of Washington School of Medicine and the Washington State University Elson F. Floyd College of Medicine. In 2021, Dr. Bundy was honored with the Washington State Medical Association President's Unsung Hero Award for extraordinary service to the profession to make Washington State the best place to practice medicine and receive care. And with all of that, I can tell you uh, personally that Dr. Bundy is just one heck of a guy and will do whatever he can to help others. And without further ado, here's Dr. Chris Bundy. Good evening. Tell our audience what that means. You know, what is a physician's health program, first of all, and why do states have organizations such as yours in place? So about... 40 years ago, the American Medical Association um, published a paper called The Sick Physician. And that paper acknowledged that physicians get sick like everybody else. But, but really up until that point, the way that physicians who were struggling with addiction or mental health issues that was, that was negatively impacting work um, was that they, they usually, there was a culture of silence until it couldn't be ignored and patients were put at risk and then discipline would, would occur and it would be um, it would typically be be swift and severe and and would really have um, oftentimes professionally catastrophic consequences for the doc and you know folks felt like doctors should get treatment like everybody else um, that that they deserve care and compassion. Uh, like everybody else, and that there ought to be a system in place uh, to help doctors and other health professionals when they when they have these kinds of problems. They have no special protection against them. Um, doctors um, have the same rate, if not higher rates, of substance use disorder than the general population. So the idea was it was really a it was really a call to action for state medical associations to put in place systems of peer support to help doctors. And then in, in Washington, we had a program in 1974 as part of the State Medical Association. Then eventually, and this is a story in a lot of states, that those programs became independent of their state medical associations. We became an independent nonprofit in Washington around 1986, and then ultimately, um, you know, kind of expanded and, and grew from there. And so what, what we are today is a physician-led, independent from the medical board. A lot of people think that we're part of the medical board, but we're not. 
Um, we, we, in, in, in high functioning physician health programs, collaboration with the medical board is essential, but also having a, a division, if you will, a separation of church and state is incredibly important for confidentiality, protection, and that sort of thing. So over 90% of people who are in our program never known to their licensing board. They don't have adverse professional consequences as a result of, of their addiction or their mental health issue or even non, non-psychiatric medical problems that could impair safe practice. And we're able to help them, support them, get them rehabilitated and back into practice uh, safely and then monitor their health for a period of time uh, to make sure that they're, they're stable and safe to practice. Okay, so physicians by themselves are no different than the rest of us human beings, and they have the same illnesses and diseases as the rest of the population. The difference is is that they are licensed and monitored by their state licensing boards, and they have certain, shall we say, standards that they need to adhere to, and certainly if they become Um, addicted, impaired, or mental health or whatnot, it can impair their ability to perform medicine or practice medicine safely. So your organization then is kind of like the buffer between that physician and the medical board to, uh, I guess, maybe rehabilitate or get them healthy so that they can continue to practice medicine. Is that pretty much how that rolls? Yeah, that's right. And we don't typically provide evaluation and treatment ourselves, but we we utilize um, you know experts in the field of of safety sensitive work. That's another way of thinking about this: is that safety sensitive workers like doctors and pilots and mm-hmm. transportation workers, um, nuclear power plant operators, law enforcement. All of these folks work in, in the safety-sensitive professions, and for those folks, uh, they have a the society really holds them to a higher standard, and so we need to make sure that the treatment that they get is effective, and that they have health monitoring that keeps them um, safe and in their in their jobs. And these programs are very effective. Okay, and you mentioned earlier that. Uh uh, the prevalence of substance use disorders, addictions, etc., uh, is pretty much the same amongst professionals as it is the general population. Is that uh, pretty much what you said? Yeah, I mean, our best data suggests that that's the, that's the case. Um, you know, there's limitations. Um, we don't have a lot of data uh, to to guide us, and then there's some data that that suggests that the data that we do have may be an underestimate, really. Um, These are, you know, we know that stress interacts with behavioral health conditions, substance use disorders, mental health conditions, and medicine's an extraordinarily stressful profession. So we would anticipate on some level that um, folks that are involved in highly stressful occupations might have some increased risk. Okay. And so I think generally nationally in the United States, it's somewhere in the 15 to 20% range for the general population uh, are, are addicted or at least reported uh, addicted. So if that holds true, then that's pretty much what we see regardless of what their career is. That's just the number. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you don't provide the treatment, but, but, what do you do in your organization, and, and why is that um, critical in in treating these uh, professionals? Well, I think um, you know what we offer initially is a is a is a confidential um, pathway for folks who are who are in difficulty. Mm-hmm. Typically, people aren't referred to our program because they're having a good day. Right. Um, they're having a bad day. They're referred to our program and they're looking for a solution. And we can um, we can say, you know, come into our program, follow direction, follow recommendations, and we can protect your career and your confidentiality. Um, the alternative is, is that if they don't work with us, typically their employer or a credentialing entity or somebody else 
who who has the ability to um, impose adverse consequences on them is are they're going to step in at that point and, and do something that that healthcare professional isn't like. So, in the absence of internal motivation for change, there is often some external motivation for change, and that that helps. You know, physicians and other healthcare professionals are very motivated to protect their careers, their investment. They come to the profession very much motivated to help others. <clears throat> They've invested a lot of their their life energy into that work and they and they and they want to protect it. It's one of the reasons why addiction and impairment shows up for health professionals at work last. You know, they're <laughs> the house burned down, their spouse left them. The, the cats, the cats disappeared. Um, they're alone. The finances are in shambles, and they're showing up at work, and everybody thinks they're okay until they're not. So they come in, and we, you know, dust them off and, and and get them connected to good evaluation, good treatment that can figure out what's going on, and provide them with with support and assistance. We typically, for safety sensitive workers, for docs, um, we're looking at sixty to ninety days of either residential or, or partial hospital level treatment in an environment where there's a cohort of other safety sensitive workers and health professionals to help deal with the shame um, that's so intensified amongst health professionals who are kind of in the know better profession. Um, they're supposed to know mm-hmm. better than to have these kinds of problems. They're held to somewhat unrealistic standards of perfection and competence. Um, so for a lot of reasons, that can really interfere with recovery unless you're around some people who have a little bit more time in the in the program, in, in a program of recovery, who can help deal with that shame. Um, and then once people get appropriately treated and we can get the, the disease process into remission, it's continuing care. These are chronic illnesses. Uh, they require really lifetime care and attention. And in all chronic illness management models, you move from you know high-intensity services at, at initial diagnosis and over time move to lower-intensity services and more self-care and self-management. And I think that's where you know, programs of personal change, um, you know, peer-based recovery support uh, comes into play. That starts while people are in treatment. Uh, it continues post-treatment. And then we monitor that to make sure that individuals are staying engaged with the counseling that they need to be doing on an ongoing basis after discharge from formal treatment, um, any other health care that they might need, psychiatry, medication management, uh, treatment for health, for other non-mental health uh, type health conditions. <clears throat> and then we put in place some accountability um, factors that I think also help. Uh, one is workplace monitoring and, and, and health monitoring. So we get reports uh, from the healthcare providers that can reassure that that individual is staying engaged in the treatment that we believe is going to be helpful to them long term and keep their disease in remission. But we're also um, doing random toxicology testing to verify um, you know, compliance with, with abstinence requirements, monitoring, and so on. And I think all of those pieces, the chronic disease management model, the accountability, um, the contingency, contingency management, if you will, um, the, the, the negative potential consequences of a return to use or uh, not following the, the, the monitoring agreement, um, all of those things sort of work together to 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 generate these, I think, outstanding outcomes. Okay, and you mentioned the continuing care, uh, specifically counseling and psychiatry. So, uh, have you got a sense, uh, either percentage, maybe percentage wise, of the uh, professionals that you that come into your program about? what percentage of them would have psychiatric or mental health conditions in addition to their substance use disorders? Yeah, that's interesting. You know, we have about about 60% of our referrals today have no substance um, concern as part of the referral. They're hmm. being referred purely for mental health issues or medical issues that are non-mental health medical issues. Um, 
Um, the, the rest are substance use referrals where that is the primary concern. And of those, the data would tell us that at least half, at least half of those individuals have co-occurring uh, mental health conditions, anxiety, depression, um, other kinds of mood disorders, um, you know, personality stylings that can be problematic, um, mm-hmm. you know, so a variety of, of other conditions, trauma, uh, PTSD, um, obsessive compulsive features, narcissism, um, obsessive, com- person- obsessive compulsive personality. So in, in reality, though, I think those, those numbers are an estimate. Um, I think it'd be, it's pretty, it's, it's really the rule rather than the exception that there's, that there's more going on, at least initially. Um, and those folks don't necessarily need lifelong care for those other psychiatric conditions. They may, uh, but, but, the, but they may need some, you know, trauma-focused therapy that will, that will help deal with that trauma. You know, unresolved trauma and recovery is a real risk for, I think, return to use. And that often gets overlooked. Or the mood symptoms that often get overlooked and are expected to just improve with sobriety. Um, so we have to be on the lookout for those things and make sure they're being, they're, they're also being treated. And is there, uh, any sense of whether the mental health condition precedes the substance use or vice versa? Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't really know. Um, I think it's, you know, I think it's either or. Um, I think what I, the way I conceptualize it though, is that regardless of which, which came first, they, they really need their own treatment. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, I used to work at the VA uh, for a long time before I worked here and, and with veterans, the story I would often get is, you know, I drink because of my depression, Mm -hmm. drink because of my PTSD. Mm -hmm. They would identify that, that those conditions as, as, as occurring first and being the, the source of their drinking. And I would say you drink and you have PTSD, you know, that we need to, we, we really need to treat both. And maybe that's why you started. Maybe that's part of the story of why you started drinking or using, but, but now that is, it's, it's a disease entity of its own. It might've started out as a coping mechanism, uh, but now it's taken on life of its own. It's a bona fide disorder. We got to treat that separately. So, but I don't know if there's good data on which comes first. I know that with a lot of our folks in just general substance use disorder treatment, you know, age at first use uh, predicts subsequent development of, of problematic use and, and, and in the old terminology, abuse and dependence. So we knew that those kids started drinking at, you know, 11 or 12. Um, they, they were in for quite a, quite a ride for their life, you know, versus folks who waited longer. So I think in those cases, you know, the, the, the substance often is preceded, but then compounds and creates other problems. Absolutely. Yeah. And I know in working with, uh, professionals, I, I would always do a timeline with them from birth to current and we'd get to that first use and then we'd see them in adolescence how much they're they're drinking or using and then we see them at college and med school and residency and it's just you know it's off the chart right by the time they get to practice they're fully addicted well it's really interesting that you raise the question of um you know the temporal relationship because what i see in this population is that what draws a lot of people to to the healing professions is trauma Mm-hmm. you know early trauma and um and i and i don't know that there's good data on this but if there is i'd like to see it which which would suggest to me that you know that that this group would would score high on adverse childhood experiences out of the gate so then it's not surprising to me that 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 the alcohol and substance use would 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 enter that picture at some point and so i i do feel like at least with trauma there's a fair number of folks that have, you know, that the that the trauma really came first, the sequelae of that, uh, and then at some point or another, the the, the substance got picked up. Yeah, and, and what's interesting is a lot of these uh, individuals, not treated men, uh, uh, just because we had a male only facility, but uh, things such as uh, their parents either. Um, divorcing or the loss of a parent during either early childhood or adolescence or something like that they never 
put two and two together. They never realized that 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 was a traumatic thing that happened to them. So when you bring up trauma, they go, no, I don't have any trauma. Well, if you go back and do their timeline and and look at their history, you go, well, hey, you had this and you had this and, you know, your dad was an alcoholic or your mother was a drug addict or, you know, you had domestic violence in the house or they split up. They, you know, one went to prison, one died, you know, whatever. Then they start to kind of see the picture uh, and and get a sense for that. And and you're right. Uh, it's like the guy at the VA, they self-medicate, yeah. you know, but, but they don't know that that's what they're doing. Yeah. What, what have you found to be uh, in, in your practice? Now you work with these professionals and you, you know, they have the continuing care. They go out and they do the counseling, the psychiatry, the med management, physical health and, and all of that. So what are you seeing in terms of, shall we say, I don't want to say success rate. I guess I want to say um, return to health, probably. Yeah. Well, you know, everybody wants to know how much, how much return to use do we see in our programs? And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the published data would tell you that that three quarters to 80% of docs in these programs don't have any identified return to use under with, you know, frequent random on demand observed urine toxicology testing, which is kind of the gold standard for, you know, for, for, for um, establishing abstinence. And Mm -hmm. so, so that's at five years. And if you're a housed employed individual in the general population, in usual care, if you manage to make it to some kind of treatment, which we know most people don't, but if they manage to make it to a typical 28-day um, treatment, 50% of those folks be relapsed within six months to a year. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, in my program today, we have 12 and, and 60-month abstinence rates of over 90% which is mm. really, really remarkable, right? That's phenomenal. So those, yeah, are, the, I mean, I think those are numbers that I can hang my hat on in terms of, of the, of the, of the successes you say, or the, or the health, the maintenance of, of, of health. And you're yeah. right. I call it that because some have actually argued that we have a biased sample because we're only, we're only, measuring this in people who have already been through that intensive residential treatment that that we're talking about <clears throat> now that may be true i don't know um but it but it, but it, but it is true that we're we're really measuring those rates and people have had you know some a treatment experience that most people don't get access to and then we're and then we're monitoring them from there now i'll tell you most of the people that i, I don't see very many people fail out of treatment so if, if people were failing out of treatment and then not being monitored, we might have a biased sample. But I don't, I don't see that as being the case. Most of the people who get to us stay with us and go through treatment. There's maybe a, maybe a handful I've seen in all my years that have really failed out of treatment and, and, and left the program and been what I would consider a real treatment failure. More often, what we see is that people who don't successfully complete, that comes at some point during their monitoring, um, during their five years of monitoring. And obviously we don't have a hundred percent success rate. So some folks have difficulty, um, you know, maintaining health under, even under conditions of monitoring accountability follow up, you know, some people just are unlucky, I think, and, and, and have a worse disease than others. Yeah. Yeah. Now you, uh, also mentioned earlier about, um, the counseling and I wanted to kind of pick up on that for, for a little bit. Have you seen uh, any uh, counseling interventions that are more effective than others, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy type or, or any other uh, interventions that, you know, your, your clients or your, I guess you call them clients or whatever, but they go through that some uh, have shown to be more helpful than others? Um, not really. I mean, I, you know, I don't think there's, first of all, I don't think there's data. I think the data is, is really around um, connection. 
mm-hmm. you know, uh, the, 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 the connection between the therapist and the, and the, and the patient is probably more important than the therapeutic modality. Okay. Uh, I think, I think therapists who can be flexible, um, and, and eclectic and, and really draw from a broad tool chest. You know, if you if you've got somebody with trauma and you can do some EMDR with that that individual, if they are deep struggling with a lot of cognitive distortions and you can pull out some CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy strategies, if somebody's going through grief and loss and they need, you know, interpersonal therapy. Um, some people really just need to go down that psychodynamic rabbit hole and you know, do some psychodynamic psychotherapy and look at their their associations and their unconscious, the unconscious drivers of their behavior. I think that that you know, as somebody who can who who can connect in a warm way, non judgmentally. I think practitioners who can utilize techniques around mindfulness um, and and help teach mindfulness and progressive relaxation techniques, real tools that people can use. Um, I think all of those things have, are, are really, really helpful. Now you beat me to that. Cause I was just making a note here to ask you about meditation and mindfulness and you already, you already stepped on it. So we're going to go there. Okay. Uh, let, let's talk about, uh, first of all, there are two ways to look at this. And one is from a physical health model and the effect of meditation and mindfulness that it has on the brain. Uh, and another way is to look at it from a therapeutic model, I guess, as to how it helps the individual uh, better cope or manage daily stressors. And then I guess the third would be their, you know, their spiritual um, health as well. So let's start with the physical talk about the physiological benefits of meditation, mindfulness and its effect on the brain. Well, I think there's been really an explosion in this research um, for all, r- r- virtually every condition under the sun, um, you know, gastroenterologic disorders, um, chronic pain, you know, mm-hmm. headache, um, you name it. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a mindfulness-based stress reduction or mindfulness intervention that's been trialed um, and, and you know, with promising results. So I think that that, that speaks to, you know, the, the, the physiologic sort of calming effect. Um, there's also a cognitive benefit. You know, my physicians will tell me that that regular mindful practice helps them be more effective, helps them pay attention to what they need to be paying attention to, gives them clarity of focus and thought at work. Um, and it's not necessarily, you know, standing on a mountain in tree pose for a half hour, focusing on your breathing. I mean, you know, research shows that, you know, neurobiological changes are happening on functional MRI within a couple of weeks of, of meditating just 10 or 15 minutes a day. You can start to see changes in the way that the, that the brain is functioning. So, it, it, you know, it's really more about a regular practice than, you know, having to become a yogi. I think people are sometimes intimidated by meditation and mindfulness because they, they think it's un, that, that it's inaccessible or, or they tried it once or twice and they didn't feel like it really worked for them, not understanding that, that it's really a it's it's a it's a marathon, not a sprint with with meditation over time. Um, but I think that there's a you know, there's a lot to there's a lot of there's a lot of tentacles of this too. You know, I think when you start talking about mindful self-compassion, um, I see a lot of need for work in self-compassion amongst physicians. Um, they're very compassionate towards others, but, but even that becomes limited and they can become callous in their day-to-day work with patients, mostly because they've not done self-compassion work, mm-hmm. really understand, you know, c- cultivating compassion within their self. So there's, you know, nice loving kindness meditation that you can you can bring into the picture to help deal with that more of that like you were talking about that spiritual piece. You know, there's the there's definitely the physiological benefits, but there's also the the communing with a higher power kind of benefit and the and the and the use of meditation to also learn to have some some self compassion and some self love. That's that's often missing, and that can be you know well years into recovery. 
uh, people can still be needing to do work around those kinds of issues. So I think there's a lot of ways in which mindfulness and meditation can be can be utilized effectively uh, in, in a, across all known health conditions. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, if we look at um, addiction, uh, substance use disorders uh, as a brain disease, if we look at it that way then how do we rehabilitate the brain? Yes, we can stop. We can use abstinence, but there's still uh, those, those habitual pathways, if you, if you, if you will, um, that, that some studies have shown that we can literally create uh, new synapses, new, new um, healthy uh, between uh, you know, the amygdala, the hippocampus, et cetera, w- which is greatly impaired with substance use disorders, that this can be restored f- quicker through meditation than just taking pills and that. Would, is that so? Yeah, I see you shaking your head. Nodding, yeah. The, um, there's some interesting data, you know, that, that gray matter volume loss is slowed in people who meditate versus non-meditators, even though the meditators in the sample are psychologically less healthy based on standardized sort of tests um, than the, than the non-meditators. Presumably the meditators are meditating because they've got some pain and they, <laughs> and they were they're, they're meditating for it. But, but some of the side benefits may be, like you said, there may be not only the ability to the, you know, better capitalize on the neuroplasticity of the brain in terms of healing but also just in terms of, you know, the aging brain, it may, it, you know, there's evidence to suggest that it may th- slow the, the aging of the brain as well. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of, you know, <laughs> we, we're really into the science of it today because that's the way our world is. But, you know, if you think, you know, most, the, the history of the traditions of meditation have been around for, you know, 5,000 years. And right. I just sort of think like something that's been around that long, um, it it wouldn't be hanging around if it if it didn't work. Um, so I mean, you know, if you if you think without the all those years ago, we didn't have all of our fancy medical interventions that we have now. The as you mentioned, the the medications and the the other types of interventions. So people, you know, had to rely on other other tools, other strategies, other techniques, and and these hung around. And and so I mean to me that really says something you know about the 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 time that we've had the scientific method and 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 all the fancy science has just been a, but a but a blip compared to the time that humans have been walking around trying to figure out how to take care of themselves and deal with stress. So I I, I put a lot of stake in 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 meditation and mindfulness just based on the fact that it's truly transcendent and has has been around for a, a real long time. Yeah, in fact, um, I <laughs> I had a uh, a guy in treatment. Just a little anecdote here, but he um, he was a scholar, and he he was is world renowned in his particular discipline. And so he uh, came into treatment, and uh, yeah, when I kind of gave him an overview view of the program, which included meditation, mindfulness, and 12 steps, higher power, and that. And he goes, well, I want you to know I'm an avowed atheist. Well, that, that's fine. It just, that doesn't, doesn't say, you know, one way or the other, but if you'll just give this mindfulness and breath work and, you know, well, if you'll just go along with it, see what you think. He said, sure. So at the end of 90 days, I sat down kind of, well, what'd you think of the program? He says, you know, I really got a lot out of that mindfulness meditation. I said, oh, spirituality. He says, no, no, we're not going there. We're not going there, but, but it sure helped me. <laughs> so I, I think, uh, and I bring that up because it doesn't necessarily mean that if you are atheist or if you are agnostic or whatever, it doesn't mean that you still can't meditate and you still can't do the breath work and, and so forth. It has, it's really independent of religion. Yeah. You know, so um, I wanted to bring that up because there are a lot of professionals who, through their studies, have kind of put religion off to the side, if you will, 
And they had a, in my experience in treatment, had a little challenge in, with higher power concept. But once we put them into the breath work and, the, and the, you know, some guided meditations and stuff like that, they were able to experience then that uh, parasympathetic nervous system of theirs kind of, you know, come, come down. And, and so then they started, okay, now that I can see that there's an actual symptom relief, uh, if I had anxiety and I'm doing this and I've been relieved of that sy- symptom, then it must work. So we didn't really have too much of an issue once they did the work and did the experience. Then they could say, okay, yeah, I am getting some symptom relief. I do feel better overall. I think, uh, you know, after one, once I do these, these breathing exercises, once I do some mindfulness, once I, you know, pause, hit the pause button and kind of step back and see what I'm thinking. <laughs> yeah. It, it it gives them that opportunity, as you say, to give give that clarity of thought. So in in your work, then how much of your uh, program, if you will, uh, is this concept of of mindfulness, like you said, mindful self compassion, mindfulness overall, or just a meditation practice? Well, I mean, we require all of our participants to engage, you know, in a program, a peer-based program of personal change. And so what does that mean? Um, You know, some people are going to get exposure to some of this through their treatment. They're going to get exposure to it through their practitioner. But if they're not getting it there, I mean, if you're in, you know, let's say 80% of our program participants choose 12 step as a, as a peer-based program of personal change. You know, okay. most folks in recovery, you know, 12 step recovery circles are talking about prayer and meditation. It's really, it's a really core part of the program. So, you know, for those folks they're if they're identifying and, and self-selecting for 12 step, then they're, they're, they're getting regular reminders at least that prayer, meditation, and spirituality is, is, a, is a normal part of a healthy human existence. And I think that there's a, you know, a lot of, you know, there's, there's 12 steps for, uh, for atheists, there's 12 steps for, for agnostics, you know, there's, there's certainly something for everyone who, with people who struggle with deity-based religion um, and the God concept. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I think our challenge really is is really helping people. Some people come to recovery really traumatized by religious experience in their lives as well, mm-hmm. and they don't want any part of it, and they're kind of allergic to it. And so we, I think, we have to you know desensitize them around that and talk about what are the different ways of having spiritual experience. And the the only worry that I have today about that is is what we're seeing with the medicalization of of substance you know with cannabis legalization and the medicalization of cannabis ketamine infusion clinics popping up that are you know backed by venture capital but you know it's it's the same same wine in a new glass so to speak it's the it's the um you know it's the quick fix mentality and and now with hallucinogens as, as medication where we're seeing psilocybin uh, legal legalization. You know, everybody's excited about the shiny new object and this whole idea of psychedelic or or hallucinogen assisted therapy. That you know, first of all, the data is not great. Um, a lot of that data has been generated by venture capital and people who are interested in commercializing uh, these treatments for the masses. So let's not be confused about what's going on out there. America's nothing, if nothing, an entrepreneurial nation that's looking at opportunity uh, amongst a public that is suffering. And um, and so, you know, we're talking, the reason I, I'm, I'm bringing this up is one, it bugs me. And two, um, you know, I think that there's no shortcut to true spiritual experience. I mean, I think you can have a, a an experience um, through some of these other other means, but I think when we get right down to it, we're all looking for a sense of deep meaning and purpose in our lives. And so for people who are struggling for a connection to spirituality, we can talk in those terms. 
you know, where, how, how do we, how do we create experiences that give you a deep sense of meaning and purpose or connection to others, uh, in, in this life so that you can have deeply satisfying, um, experiences in your life. And, and where does that come from? And I think, you know, engaging in meditative practice, engaging in, in, in prayer, engaging in other rituals and traditions that have, you know, are trans theoretical and have been connected to joy and happiness across the ages. To me, that's, that's, that's a big part of what we need to be focusing on in recovery. If recovery doesn't feel good, if, if it's not making your life better, you aren't doing it right. And yeah. so, you know, some people find that through exercise and they find a meditative practice inside of, you know, marathon running or triathlons, or you can help people connect to spiritual experience because what they do for physical activity is, is, is involves the outdoors and they feel a connection that way. So, I mean, there's lots of ways to sort of, to sort of, you know, my wife likes to put kale in my smoothies and stuff, you know, sort of scalp out. Yeah. So I think, I think we just have to make sure that it's, you know, we're, we're, we're finding that hook for people. Mm -hmm. um, we don't have to call it religion. We don't have to call it spirituality, but we can talk about it in terms of purpose, meaning connection. Yeah, excellent. And uh, I want to bring up this along those lines, this idea of, of balance, because you talked about um, uh, the overall uh, health. And my experience with the professionals would be something like this. Uh, they get into practice, whether it's private practice, joint practice or hospital, whatever, uh, 10, 12 hour day or or what have you then when they come home uh they have to do their notes because they don't have time during the day to do the notes and they're often up until midnight or one in the morning doing notes and then they crash and then they're up at five in the morning and and go again so clearly there is no balance in in their life how do you address this with your professionals Oh my gosh, what a great question. Um, it's probably one of the most important questions. Um, and it, you know, maybe this is going to sound too, I don't know, Pollyanna-ish. To me, it's about values. Um, you know, I talk with my, my docs about, you know, the fact, you know, when was the last time you had enough time? Because mm -hmm. we, we always <laughs> think of in terms of time. Right. Um, and that we don't have enough of it. And, and I think that that's, that's kind of, um, that's kind of, a, I don't think that's a necessarily helpful way to look at it because what we do then is we borrow time. We borrow time from sleep. We borrow time from things that really energize us and are really important to us. We, we forget, we lose track of what's mm -hmm. most important and we and we make we make a we make a deal a day you know um to, to to bargain back for a little bit more time and then pretty soon you know our we've got more more yesterdays than tomorrows and we wake up and we're sort of wondering what where did it all go and uh what did i do wrong and and and, and maybe i have some regrets and i think that's a values problem and i don't think we're taught to, to periodically do a, a, a real values inventory and reassessment, because that also changes over time. You know, what was important to me, I mean, I see medical, I work with medical students, right? And I see them choosing their careers and they think to themselves as 20-somethings, cardiothoracic surgery, you know, I got all the energy in the world. You know, I can work 80 to 100 hour weeks the rest of my life. I'm up for that because the rewards of this profession will be so great. And then but then you start layering on aging parents and, and families and kids and how different things come into your life that then change your priorities. And you're not thinking about that when you're, you know, when, when you're a young person with all that energy, just your need for sleep is going to change mm -hmm. as you get older. Right. And so you have to right. really protect your, your sleep. And if you're working in a profession where you got to be on call a lot, you got to be up at all hours of the night, like an ER doc, um, you're not thinking, you know, that those decisions get made at a time in, in, in your life when your values and priorities are different. So I say all of that because I, I try to get people out of the time trap 
and start thinking about, you know, and, and this is again, going back to the mindfulness thing. I think this is where mindfulness practice really helps too, because I do think that mindfulness practice can help you when it comes to sitting there, sitting back and distilling what, what's really important to you. Um, do I have the awareness to focus on the thing that's important to me that needs my attention when it needs it and to shift gears? And have I created space in my life so that I can attend to those other things that are, in, including myself, I have to be on that list, right, of things that I can, that I, that I care for and that are important to me. I think if we can get docs oriented to that, they start making different decisions about their lives. I've seen docs go from full-time to part-time, you know, maybe three-quarters time or 60% time, and they think, oh my gosh, I'm, you know, my income is going to be decimated. I'm not going to be able, you know, I'm not going to be happy. And, and, we, and we do it as an experiment. And their productivity actually stays about the same. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Right? Yeah. I've seen that multiple times is that a doc can, can, can shave off a, a, a day a week in clinic and usually maintain their same RVU productivity, which is often how they're compensated. So they actually don't see the decline in income, but they do see the benefits of creating a little bit more space in their life and, and shuffling shuffling their priorities. They're happier at work. They're more productive at work. They feel like they're better focused and doing a better job, but they're also showing up in their personal life in ways that are, that are meaningful, important to them. And so their burnout is going down and they're feeling better. And much to their surprise, um, they're feeling better and they're enjoying life more, even though they thought this thing was going to be a terrible experiment. But so often, we, the other thing I would, I would close with is just, you know, <laughs> the old thing of like, what you're doing isn't working, you mm -hmm. know? We could hardly change, you know, we could hardly go wrong uh, by changing something. And, and, and that's really what we need to do sometimes to get unstuck and what's that, what's that thing going to be? So that's, I, I think, some of my general approach to kind of helping people find balance and, and really find out what's important for them. Yeah, and I think, Chris, in doing that, their um, stress level is going to go down. Anxiety go down. And, and I would say probably in my experience, the most common co-occurring mental health disorder was anxiety and or depression. And uh, if you can, if you can do what you said, find those values and then, and then stop borrowing time, but creating, I guess, boundaries, if you will, for work, uh, boundaries for the things that you used to just you know uh, just you did without thinking of, of boundaries so that you've got that family time so that you've got that hobby time so you've got you know time like you said that mindful self-compassion by creating those boundaries then you are creating a a healthier uh, you, uh, so to speak, right? Yeah, I think we need to, you know, we're, we're trained as health professionals to, you know, that we're like machines, mm -hmm. you know, but I mean, geez, look at, I mean, even a machine, look at your iPhone, like you can't run it all day and not plug it in. Mm -hmm. And, and the, and the way that we would, that we plug ourselves in, you know, that varies for each of us, but but it's uh it's it's un it's not hackable. Right. <laughs> you know, to use a Brene Brown kind of thing, you know, you, you you can't hack your need to recharge to energize. And what's really interesting about this, I used to do this I used I sometimes do this exercise where I it's called the 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 three hour rule. And I and I ask people to 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 block out three hours in their week. I, three hours isn't a lot of time, but to some people, you could, you know, they just roll their eyes like, "Where's this time going to come from?" And and but it has to be completely unscheduled time. You can't use it to go to the gym. I mean, you could go to the gym if, you know, if you're doing it right, you decide when the hour comes up what you're going to do, whatever comes to mind, and it should be something that's enjoyable for you. But it's completely unstructured, 
three hours in your week. And docs are funny, you know, they'll be like, well, can I do it in, you know, 12, 15 minute block? And I just think, <laughs> do it however you want, but it's got to be three hours of, of time that's totally for you. That's just, you know, unstructured, unplanned, and you do what, what comes to mind. And you see what happens with that. The reason I ask people to do it is because it creates space for things that are important and are of interest to start to effervesce. Sometimes it takes longer than others, depending on, you know, kind of how sick we are. Um, but, but if people are diligent in the exercise, um, what I almost always find is that people are picking up that dusty old guitar in the corner that they used to play and they're starting to fiddle with it more. And then they're looking up music online and they're, you know, they're playing around with that or they're going to the, the, the bookstore the used bookstores that they used to they used to like to you know peruse through or they're 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 picking up some some recipes and starting to cook some things again that they used to do <clears throat> and then what i tell people is you know that that there's an informed consent that i have to do around this which is if this is done properly you know risks benefits and alternatives of this procedure are that you may find that 3 hours isn't enough and so you may actually find yourself needing to to open up those blocks and schedule a little bit more time. But but again, it's about creating that space, you know, and then seeing what happens. And and the beauty of it is, is that when people rest and recharge and do these things, what they find is they actually do better. So when I'm working with medical students and residents who feel like they have no time and they should just be studying all the time, right? Every waking moment. But what what we when we do this experiment and they do it in in earnest. What they find is that their grades, their performance actually improves and they're having more fun mm. and they can't believe it's it. Interesting. They can't believe that there's a sweet spot where, you know, human performance can no longer be pushed and that you're better off even Netflix and chilling than spending another hour of studying. And when you start to do that, you, you, you feel better, you enjoy your life more and your performance really doesn't suffer. That, that's, that's amazing. Um, that that you get more done by doing less. Yes, exactly. Because there's a curve, yeah. right? There's a point of diminishing, diminishing return, returns, and then mm -hmm. beyond which your your productivity actually goes down. So every minute you spend in that low productivity mode, you're 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 really you're really losing, you know. And so you should be doing something else to 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 really rejuvenate. If a uh professional is listening to this and realize that uh, they need help, what, what is your uh, recommendation for them if they go, hey, you know what, I think I fit in a lot of what they're talking about applies to me. How, how can they go about finding help in their state? Well, most states, like I, like I said before, have a physician health program. And you usually those physician health programs are, are willing to help people, even if they don't have impairing level of illness. They're just looking for services and support. Half the people that, that are referred to our program actually don't end up in monitoring agreements at all. We, we help them find, find services, support, help them think about what's going on. And, and you can call anonymously. You know, if you don't want to say who you are, but you're just looking for help, we'll help anybody who calls us, you know. All you got to do is say you're a doctor or another kind of health professional that we serve, and and we'll provide those provide those resources. I think for those who are, who, who are connected to a, a religious community, um, looking, you know, seeking out your, 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 your counsel, your, your pastors, your priests can be helpful. I mean, you can, you can always go online and start looking around at resources that are available. You can talk to peers and colleagues if that feels, if that feels safe to you. I would say, you know, mostly if you're worried about yourself, don't worry alone. You know, one of the things that's hardest for health professionals to do is really ask for help. Mm -hmm. And so thinking about where it's safe for you to ask for help. And, and, you know, we have a lot of fears that are cooked up around asking for help. But what I've found to be true um, in my own life, in my own recovery, in my own experience with all this is that, you know, when you're around healers all day, that those people are in the profession because they want to help. And they're not going to look at you. I've never looked at, I don't know about you, Ken. I've never looked at anybody that asked me for help and said, 
damn, I really had a high opinion of that person until now. <laughs> um, exactly. You know, what, what I, I actually, I, because it's all about me, because, you know, we're all the heroes of our own stories. Right. I, I'm just honored that somebody would, would, would have enough respect for me to ask me for help. And I think if we remember that that's the experience that somebody's going to have when we ask them for help is it's one of being, being honored, um, that, that your opinion matters enough that this person would reach out to you. I think when we, that can help us lower our own, our own reticence to, to, to ask for help and say, I'm, you know, and you don't, you know, judicious disclosure, you don't have to tell your whole story to a non-professional, but if you can reach out to someone and say, I really, you know, it, it would, a burden shared, you know, is a burden lessened. And so I think the minute you start, you start talking about it, the worst thing you can do, I think is suffer in silence. Yeah. I think that, 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 that silent, you know, I, I know for myself, you know, stuff can rattle around in my brain for a long time and I can't make any progress on on finding a solution until i say it out loud to another human being and there's something about giving it life in that way that now i've said it it's out mm -hmm. you know the genie's out of the bottle and now we got to do something about it you know and 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 that's a really powerful kind of experience to have with another human being so i i guess i'd say just just try to connect with whomever you can yeah i I recall one one fellow said to me one time uh, that a problem that's talked about is a problem half solved. So you know, kind of interesting. Oh yeah, yeah. I like that. Now, if if uh, let, let's say they Google and they don't have a physician health program in their state, is there somewhere else that they can contact? I mean, there's you know, there's the if you're really in crisis, mm -hmm. there's the you know, there's the national suicide. Uh, crisis number mm -hmm. that we can call eight one one now or whatever it is. I think and um, is that the one? Is that what it is? I don't want to say the wrong thing on your yeah. Podcast, I don't know eight one one or seven one one something like that. Yeah, I, I I do recall that. But I think you know you can always utilize those resources. There's also a number of online free resources um, for you know you can you can actually go to the go to our website at www w.wphp.com <clears throat> but there are a lot of um, resources out there where other physicians trained physicians peer support physicians are willing to talk to physicians who are having difficulty um, and kind of and kind of problem solve you know what what might be needed and those services are are free of charge and anonymous and so i think you know accessing those resources also oftentimes your state medical association, a lot of state and county medical associations nationally are standing up these, what are called physician wellness programs. And they're different from what we do from physician health programs, but they still offer, you know, some brief counseling or coaching or other types of, of supports. I mean, you can always um, look at your, your employer's EAP uh, programs, things of that nature, but physicians historically have not tended to want to utilize mm -hmm. um, employer-based resources. So I, I, I neglect to mention them, but uh, I mean, I, I'm a little bit reluctant to mention them, but I think, you know, some of those resources that you can access online, talk to somebody live uh, who's, who's, who's willing and able to help. Um, and there's lots of resources uh, places like, you know, the, the, the AMA steps forward has, you know, modules around physician health and well-being and wellness that connect can can get people pointed towards resources. But a lot of times state um, and county medical associations are there uh, to get people oriented. I mean, obviously, you know, talk to your primary care doctor and, and you know, that's, the, you know, a lot of us don't have primary care doctors. When I got people in my office and I say, who's your primary care doctor? And they start looking at their shoelaces, right? And it's like, okay, we got to do something about that. Um, but, you know, utilizing that primary care doctor and saying, you know, I think I need some help with X, Y, or Z. And sometimes they can help you get connected with some resources too. So those are all my best ideas about, about how, to, how to access support other than, you know, getting online and, and, and finding a counselor that, you, you know, you want to start, start trying to see. And if that's the case, you know, I usually tell people to, Try to get 
try to get two or three names and interview a few people and and see if there's some chemistry and if there's a fit there um, for in terms of a in terms of self you know referral and shopping for your own mental health provider. Yeah, I know I've uh, sent people to psychology today, find a therapist, which is a great, great resource too. And then uh, yeah. and your website is WPHP.com. Dot org. org. Yep. Okay. WPHP.org. All right. Excellent. Dr. Bundy, it's been a quick hour. <laughs> and yeah. I appreciate your time. I really do. And I, I know that there's a lot of people going to listen to this. And, uh, and, uh, you know, you just can't, you never know. It's, it's like throwing that, that stone in the lake. You never know where that ripple is going to go, you know, and, yeah. and it just is one of those things. So I, I appreciate your time and, um, wish you the best in, in your, uh, program there. And uh, let's just stay in touch. Yeah, that's great. And thank you for honoring me with inclusion in this work that you're doing. I think it's really powerful. And I just wanted to thank you for, for being out there and, 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 and being a voice uh, around these issues for people who, who need it. My pleasure. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Mind Syrup Podcast. We hope you found useful information to help you live with a substance use and mental health disorder. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss upcoming episodes. Find out more at mindsyruppodcast.com and invite a friend to listen too.